I'm delighted to be here in historic Franklin or downtown at Roger Cook's house. And Roger is a celebrated singer, songwriter, and bon vivant, and um, fine Englishman who just made me a cup of tea. And welcome to Applaudable Perspectives. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Well, thanks so much for allowing me to come over today. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. You were born outside of Bristol, England? No, actually in Bristol. You were born in, in Bristol. In Bristol, okay. a place called Fish Ponds. Love the name. And there were no fish ponds in Fish Ponds, so where it goes now, I have no idea. But Maybe there was at one point. <laughs> no. Well, there might have been, it must have been centuries ago. Anyway, I was born there. It's like growing up in Franklin. It's a small town atmosphere. And, um, sorry, I've just seen Robin coming back. Huh. She must have forgotten something. You can edit that. Of course, yeah. Anyway, Fish Bond Bristol, yes. In 1940, just as um, as Jerry decided to bomb the shit out of the city. You can edit that too. Mm. Um, Do you remember anything so, from, oh, from that time? I remember a lot of the, the war. Must have been terrifying. I remember all our, the windows and the lights covered in brown paper. Do you remember ra rationing? Going the shelter. And, and do you remember rationing? Did they have oh, food rationing? Oh yeah, that rationing? went on to 1953 till I was 13. That's insane. That late. Wow. Well, we won the war, but it was devastating to the economy sure. of England and uh, the farms and everything. I mean, people grew in their own backyards. Everybody turned their backyards into pantries, more or less, you know. Victory gardens. They Growing everything they needed, yeah. They had them in America, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I remember uh, the searchlights and uh, going down and sitting on my mother's lap till the old clear went, you know. Because I was five when the war ended, I, I had memories, you know. Mm -hmm. I remember the victory party at the end of the street where we all sat out around tables. Did you understand it or was it just something no. really... No, mm. never understood. It was just part of our lives then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kids are so adaptable. I do remember um, going down to the city centre until the mid-60s. The city centre was just black stumps of buildings everywhere. Because mm -hmm. the docks in Bristol came right up into the heart of the city centre. And all the old 13th century, 14th century buildings all around were just demolished. Decimated. With mm -hmm. bombs. All that beautiful architecture was destroyed. Yeah. Luckily a lot of it survived. Yes. And the tenacity of the English people to rebuild. Yeah. Now, how, how would we... screw you attitude, you know. There you go. Well, Stiff upper lip. So, what, did you come from a large family? Well, there were five kids. Mm -hmm. I guess that's fairly large. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in those days, um, it was the tail end of Victorian times, really, in the 40s, and people were still having large families. Mm -hmm. You had large families because some of them were likely to die, the kids, you mm -hmm. know. And of course, no contraception to speak of. Sure, sure. Now, what else do you do? No TV? So they made families. <laughs> and ours was fairly small, but you know, it's ordinary sized family. Five Comparatively, kids. yeah. Now, what did your family do? Were they farmers or? <clears throat> no, my father, he was a musician before the war. Played banjo. Oh, really? And banjo was very popular in big banjo bands. Uh huh. And uh, then he he learned to trade the tool making. Because of that, he never had to go and fight. He was making aircraft parts. 
big aircraft factory. Mm -hmm. Another reason that Bristol got bombed so badly is because to destroy had aircraft factories and docks. Sure, makes sense. So that, that's what he did. But his love of music permeated the family, you know, throughout the, the brief history of the family <clears> there. <throat> and uh, What type of music did he play? Just popular? I'm sorry. What type of music did he play in the banjo? Classical. Oh, um, popular music. Popular. Yeah. Uh -huh. But he loved classical music. When we were kids, we listened to a lot of classical music, uh -huh. which uh, I'm glad we did. Mm -hmm. And what about the rest of the, the, your brothers and sisters? Were they musical or your mom musical? All musical. Mm -hmm. Every one of us. My brother sang, my sister sang. Did you have a family band to perform together? No, but we would get together on the evenings long before TV came along and sit around and dad would, dad could play piano, fiddle, and banjo. Wow. And we'd sit, and my brother, my oldest brother learned to play guitar. So I've it's got, in your I've DNA. Got pictures always, you know, just singing away and enjoying. Yeah. That's where I learned harmonies, you know. Yes, yeah. Do you remember the first time you picked up a pen and wrote a song and how old you might have been? Yeah, I know exactly, I was 18. I had the hots for a girl called Judy. And she comes into the story. I was in a group, a doo-wop group. Mm -hmm. And we did covers more or less of everything. But the, the guitarist in the group, we had one guitar. He wrote a song that the girl singer in the group sang. And I was so jealous. I thought, if he can do it, I can do it. So I sat down and wrote a song for Judy, my darling. <laughs> my very first song. It took me about 10 minutes to write and I thought, well, that's pretty easy. I'm going to really? write some more. So in 1958, I started writing songs. Was it a good song? No. <laughs> well, it, it was apropos of the times, you know. It, sure. just a, it sounded like a 1958 teenage ballad. It, it impressed Judy, though. Yeah. <laughs> that's all that matters. Then I wrote a song that the, the group started performing out loud and it's pretty darn good. And uh, I just got on the trail of songwriting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had to wait six years to get a big hit, but. That's not a long time though. Not really, not for an apprenticeship, no. No. Who were your mentors back then? Did you have people teaching you how to write or did you? No. There was no YouTube. All <laughs> my mentors were on the radio. And who did you listen to? Who did you love listening to? The BBC to? in those days played all kinds of sure. music. If you wanted to hear a pop song, you were probably going to hear some jazz, some Scottish band music, Irish music, classical music, all on the same program. Mm -hmm. And so we grew up with very Catholic taste when it came down mm -hmm. to music, you know. Mm -hmm. And the Beatles grew up in the same era as me. And uh, you notice there, they delve into all kinds of music. Oh, absolutely. Really. I, I feel sorry for the kids now who grew up with one radio show that they really liked. They just played their particular kind of music. Right. Well, and you ask them, like, who are your influences? Like, I'll, they'll say to me, oh, Garth Brooks. I'm like, well, who are his influences? Like, yeah. dig a little deeper. Well, mine were Nat King Cole. Ah, classic. Um, Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, I hate to say it, probably Perry Como. Um, oh, smooth voice, beautiful crooner. And, uh... Yeah, he sang some dreadful songs in the early 50s. He Get out of some... here with a boom, 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 and don't come back no more. I mean, really bad stuff. And then in 1916, uh, sorry, 1956, uh, 
along comes Wap Babalula, Bala Bamboo, Little Richard. And Tuda suddenly fruity. everything changed. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, were my, people shocked with wow. that? Were they just shocked with that? Just yeah. edgy and sexy my and in your it. face. He said, that's not music, son. I said, no, but it's good, isn't it, Dad? Can't, no. help, can't help but tap your feet. That's it. And then Elvis, of course, and mm -hmm. um, the Everything Brothers and Buddy Holly and and want everybody, you know. Well, you know, race music, quote unquote race music, what it was called here, wasn't getting played on the radio. So it got shipped to the UK. You all listened to it oh, and I shot know. it back with the British invasion <laughs> to, to America. That's exactly what happened. We listened to all those bands, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, everybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did. We ended up sending it back with a slightly different flavor yes. yeah. and a Liverpudlian accent. Yeah. And the, yeah, the Stones, I mean, all of those guys were influenced yeah. from it. So um, you said your first song, it took you six years to have your first hit. What was the first hit? It was a thing by a group called The Fortunes. Mm -hmm. There's quite a story to it. Roger Greenway and myself, mm -hmm. we, he asked me to join his vocal group in 1963. They were called The Kestrels, and they opened for a lot of people on stage, on tour, you know, like The Beatles, they opened for The Beatles and that. And he asked me to join him, and uh, one day, about three months into a tour that we were doing with Herman's Herman, ah, uh, he said, I've got this little tune, you write songs. I said, yeah, I do write songs. He said, what do you think of this? And he had this little bit of tune he played, and I said, oh yeah, yeah, let me get in on that. And we finished the song in two hours. Took it to London, demoed it, and George Martin, the Beatles producer, mm -hmm. heard it and he called us to his office and he said, I love the song, I love the way you sing, I'd like to produce you. Wow. So, this is mid-60s, I mean, it was awesome. And so we floated out of that office thinking, we're going to be stars, we're going to make a lot of money. Well, meanwhile, another group had got hold of it uh, called The Fortunes. Mm -hmm. And they got the record out before ours because George was tied up making a, an album called Rubber Soul with the Beatles. Mm -hmm. and we had to wait three months for them to finish it. And meantime, the fortunes got a hold of it and it went all the way around the world. It's a hit, a big hit here in the mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of bittersweet because we, uh, one thing we had a hit record going around the world, we were making money somewhere but it could have been ours. So you, you went to number seven in the U.S. and number two in the U.K., I think yeah. is what the research said, okay. And all over the world, it was a hit, you know, it was just... Now you also were in a band called Blue Mink. Yeah. And you had lots of top 20s in that band. Yeah, yeah, about yeah. seven or eight. Yeah. So that was pop, that was pop music. That was pop. And then... I mean, it was a black girl and a white boy, and we sang a song called Melting Pop, it's all about Everybody getting together, turning out the same color, you know. Right, right. Coffee right. color, and then no more arguments about that, you know. Wow. It was a big hit in Europe, but here it froze in 1960. Probably too progressive. I've got to say, down south here, they weren't ready for that message. Well, you keep that message with I'd like to teach the world to sing. I mean, later on, yeah, you, you continue to, to. So at some point, you were singing background for Elton John. Yeah, he was a friend, that's all, yeah. and uh, Roger and I kind of helped, and we, we got some of his songs to other people, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, he was so happy about that, he gave us the B-side of a record called Daniel. Ah, 
just as a gift, he gave it to us. And uh, I love stories like that's that. That's when B-sides earned a lot of money, you know. But, you know, so many times people forget who, who helped him get to the table, and that's really lovely to no, hear. No, he that was he, a very, he still is a lovely, lovely man. Lovely man, yeah. He a seems to be. Of, I haven't seen him in ages. Yeah. But yeah, I saw him the first few albums he made. So, you're doing well in England. Why did you decide to move to the States? And why Nashville, country music? And where does Ralph come in? Well, I decided to move. I just, I was very aware that life, you know, terminates at a certain point. And I was 35 and I said, I need an adventure. Mm. And Roger and I decided we were going to probably part ways. We'd had a great business for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided to come to America. I went to New York for a few months. And you were married at the time? Yeah. So you married My to wife Joan. Let, me, let me come, you know. Uh-huh. You were married to Joan at the time or no? Joan. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I came to America and I spent three months in New York. I liked it. And if I'd been single, I might have stayed there. But I didn't see raising the family there. My three children I had with Joan. So I went to um, L.A. Spent six weeks there and thought, no, yeah, this mm -hmm. is not for me. And somebody said, you should go to Nashville. I said, why would I go to Nashville? I don't like country music. They said, you'll like it. You'll like the studios, you'll love the musicians, you'll like the people, the climate, the food. And every one of those was exactly right. Wow. I came for a week and stayed 47 years. So how did you meet Ralph Murphy? And well, Ralph I knew from England. From England, yeah. He, he was also published as a songwriter. Mm -hmm. At Mills Music in the uh, mid uh, mid sixties, and he moved to America in the early seventies, and I knew he was there in New York. So when I went to New York for three months, Ralph and I started hanging out a lot, mm -hmm. and he was working as a professional manager at the time for Mills Music. Oh no, kidding! Okay. And so when I moved to Nashville and decided I was going to make it my home and I was going to form my own business. I called him up and said, why don't you come down and run this business with me? He said, yeah, absolutely. And he jumped at it because we we're all friends. So we came down here and uh, we formed Picklick. You must have been quite an anomaly back then. You know, these two I English think, chaps starting a publishing company. I think they all thought we were gay because we put each other on. <laughs> darling, hello, darling. And then we did this. So I think that was the word that went around at the time. And in mid seventies, that wasn't necessarily a good thing. No, no, uh, uh. Attitudes had changed since. I just remember him drinking Heineken beer. Heineken beer, absolutely. And he was in a golf tournament, and he was zipping around in a golf cart, and he he flipped the cart, never spilled his beer, but I think he broke his arm. Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah. What a nice man, though. He was always very, oh, very nice, very helpful. My wonderful Ralph. Yeah. Uh, Irreplaceable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll never have another partner in, mm -mm. in, in that sense. So when I moved to you, you already had Pickalick going, and that was started when? Back in the 70s? 70, late 70s. Late 70s, okay. Beginning of 77. So you were publishing your own songs, and then you also were signing people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the 10 years we were together, we had 14 number ones. It That's was wonderful. What a successful company. What are some of the songs that people would remember, uh, or artists that people would remember? The very first hit we have was Talking in Sleep with Crystal Gale. Ah, the best. Now, who wrote yeah. Did you write that too? No. Yeah, I wrote it with Bobby Wood. Mr. Alan Reynolds. Mm, yeah. The Alan. best. 
He liked the song. Chris wasn't sure about it because it wasn't really a country song. It was like a pop song. Right. But anyway, she did put it out and of course it was a big Smash, hit. yeah. And then we were writing, um, Don Williams took a liking to, to my writing. He started cutting quite a few of our songs. And Ralph had two number ones with uh, Ronnie Millsap. And what? anyway, we do you remember the, Do you writers. remember those songs from Millsap? Which ones? Yeah, one was called, well, no, you jogged my memory now. Um, I'll think in a minute. Yeah. Now you had cuts with Don Williams. Of course, you had The Hollies. That was a huge hit. The Hollies, yeah, that was a biggie. Huge. One of my faves. Love the production on that. Yeah, well, that's Dan Allen, the, the guy I wrote it with. Mm. He did the production. He's the one playing that down, 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 you yeah, know, yeah. that little riff and everything. So And then was, Mr. Prine, John Prine. John and I had a. I just want to dance with you. Together, yeah. yeah. He and was fishing. a wonderful man, wasn't he? Oh. He wasn't the greatest snooker player. Well, then none of us were, you know. But mm -hmm. we used to play snooker every Wednesday night. And then go fishing twice a year up in Arkansas. I miss him terribly. Mm -hmm. Lost a lot of special people recently, that's for sure. Oh. I've lost. I'm getting to an age now, I'm going in 82, you know. Now I'm just getting to an age where people are dropping off all over the place. Well, you don't look it. Well, bless you. Thank you, dear. Uh, so, I don't feel it. No, exactly. That's lucky. So so what's a typical day for you? Do you still write? Do you still get up and say, I, I feel a hankering to write? I write two or three times a week. That's great. Yeah. Do I'm you start still... with lyrics first or melody or just it depends? It really depends. Sometimes it's melody, sometimes it's a lyrical idea. Then I hang a melody on the lyrical idea, you know. Do you typically write by yourself, Roger? Or? No, I like to write with people. It's a sociable thing. And it's twice the output. I mean, uh -huh. just because sitting down and writing with someone, they come up with an idea, you know. You help them write it. I'm always amazed to see how songwriting has morphed and Years ago, there were two writers on a song, maybe, but not four or five. And, and I, I, I mean, how do you make any money there? I still write with just uh, one other partner, mostly. Who, who do you like to Nine write with? Nine times out of ten. I write with young people. There's a guy called Johnny Lucas, who's from England, uh -huh. from Warrington. And uh, a young guy called Galen Crew, who I really like a lot. And I've been writing with some young girls. Um, Larissa, Larissa Murphy, she's really good. And Amaya Sharp, been writing with her lately. And she's real good. And I've been writing a show, finishing a show. Well, you've written musicals. So yeah. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I've had the one musical on in the West End in London. And that, that, uh, that was a thrill. The show only ran for five months. Beautiful so, and Damned? Yeah. It was about a F. Big Scott show. and uh, Zelda. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a big show. I don't think they liked us putting dancing shoes on F. Scott Fitzgerald. I'm sure he danced a lot, though. I'm sure he... Well, I mean, he danced with Zelda, for sure. For sure. But not, you know, not the um, big ensemble dancing. This was a dance-oriented show. Uh -huh. But I started a show way back in 74 with a guy called Lana Barb 
who wrote the show Oliver, ah. which is a big show. Great, great and show. And I started the show back then, and I've just finished it. Why don't you get Studio 10 to mount it? Well, You're in town, that would be fabulous. Love to, love to. Do you know those folks? I'll introduce We've you to them. Just finished. I'm, I'm, in fact, this coming Monday, I'm going to finish the demos of the show. You know, I'll be happy to introduce you to them. They're, that's um, Patrick Cassidy is the artistic director. Uh-huh. And he is Shirley Jones and Jack Cassidy's son. Oh. Sharp guy. He also does a podcast. Great podcast, yeah. Yes. And I, I bet they'd be interested in that. Well, this is a Jewish show. It's about um, Golda Meir, her life story. Oh, no kidding. Wow. And it's, it's a great story, her life story. So it's a drama. Yeah. Escaping the pogroms in Russia when she was six and fleeing to America and then growing up in Milwaukee mm -hmm. and then of course going to Israel and become mm -hmm. Prime Minister during two wars. So you strike me as being a reader. Are you? Do you love to read? You're a student of history and... Yeah. yeah. All, all the Brits are students of history because mm -hmm. we had an empire. Even when I was a young kid, the empire was still intact. And so the sun we never sets. Geography and history. Sun never sets on the British Empire, right? But it didn't. For a very it long time. It does now. It does now. Yeah. But when I was a kid, um, about a quarter of the world was part of the British it's Empire. British, sure. It was monstrous. Have you traveled Africa, a lot? India, Australia, pardon? Have you traveled a lot? Do you like to travel? All over Europe. Yeah. Not being in places like New Zealand, South America, mm -hmm. and that. Yeah, traveling is wonderful. <sighs> Broadens your other people, you know. Broadens your horizons. I, I always tell people to travel and as early as you can, because I think if you don't travel, you get fearful. When you don't, what you don't know, you often get fearful of. You get very insulated. Absolutely. Too. I mean, no question. I fear that's a big problem in America. I agree. A lot of people don't go in their minds far beyond the farm or the the town they grew up in. Or they go to the, you know, every time there's a, they have a holiday, they go to the same place. Yeah. They go to the beach or go they go to, to the Florida, mountains or, yeah, Mexico, whatever. Mexico if they're adventurous. Uh-huh. Well, then they go to the Yucatan or something, you know, they're not yeah. going to Mexico City and going to the museum. That's or, right. Yeah. Now, I, I quite agree. I love to, I love to travel myself. I'm getting ready to go to Morocco. So, uh, it broadens your horizons. It makes you a more interesting person and hopefully more tolerant. Well, yeah. No. Well, I was in a couple of bands that had hit records, so so I got tour all over Europe, yeah. every inch of Europe. Yeah, you know? yeah. But we, we, were you so slammed you didn't have a chance to sightsee? Or did you make some time to sightsee while you were traveling? We didn't do a lot of sightseeing, but traveling around the towns, from town to town, you saw the countryside. Now, talk about, and I can remember this commercial, being a kid, talk about I'd like to teach the world to sing, and how that how that manifested and became a huge Coca-Cola commercial. I mean, that's like something they could revive tomorrow and it would, it would still be very timely. Well, there is talk of it being revived for the, um, the World Cup soccer. Perfect. But anyway, um, well, that came about because the people at Coca-Cola or the people at the, uh, the um, agency that did, did all the jingles, McCann Erickson, mm -hmm. uh, the guy who ran it, um, Bill Backer, he loved the Fortunes record. And so he had us over to New York, pulled us over to write songs for them to make Coca-Cola jingles with the Fortunes singing. It was something they did then. They would take a big star, be it Nat King Cole, Brooke Benjamin, or the mm -hmm. Fortunes. Do you know Danny Haber? 
Yes, I do know Dan. Yeah. He's, he lives right over here on Lewisburg. He's a great guy. I've seen, well, I've got to know quite a few people going to the meetings, you know, the water arrangement. Yeah, his wife's name is Vicky. Uh-huh. But he has that beige house with the Confederate monument in the front. But, Very nice. Very nice. Anyway, pick up. It's a great vet. We started doing jingles for Coca-Cola. They liked us. And, so uh, this is McCann Erickson out of New York. Yeah. And you were living in Nashville at the time? Or were you still no, in England? No, we were living in London. Oh, you time. were still in England. Okay. And we started doing a lot of jingles from people like Leslie Gore. Uh, oh, yeah. The Trogs, uh, Bobby, what's his name now? Uh, some, anyway, we started working with big singers, you know. Bobby Darren? Uh, not Bobby Darren, no. No, no, Bobby, oh, Christ, what's his name? Can't think. Big artists, anyway. Well, you had you had an Andy Williams cut, you had the Congregation, you had Cliff Richard, all of those guys cut your stuff. And George Strait. You had a George, hit with George Strait, that's a amazing. I with George, yeah. Who was producing him? Tony Brown? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, Tony. Love Tony. Little old Tony. I love him. Yeah, he's a good man. He's he good did man. our show. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're talking about I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing. And what, what are we talking about? We're talking 70s, I'm thinking? When did, when did that Yeah, 71. Well, okay. Bill Backer was coming over to write a jingle. Coca-Cola decided they want something rather anthemic. Love thy brother, you know, we're all in this together, which was happening around that time. And uh, we sat well, that down was one day and In the we, middle of the war, right? Yeah, Vietnam War was yeah. happening. Well, we had a, Roger and I had a melody and they were searching for a melody. Bill had come up and decided they have, um, it's the real thing which was his baby, you know, and he wanted a song that would go with it. And, you know, in the way we did, we combined the song with the jingle. And Roger and I have this melody. Roger came up with the idea. He said, what about, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Bam. In perfect space, harmony. In space of two hours, we had the song written. And it went out as a radio spot, 58 seconds. And, and that was the fortune singing it? No. Who was singing a group it? called the New Seekers. The New Seekers. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, there was another band called the Hillsiders. Uh -huh. In fact, there were—I think there were two top ten versions of the same song. Anyway, um, we wrote it and forgot all about it. It didn't do much on radio, and then they decided Coca-Cola they wanted a big video. They were going to have a video with kids singing on the hillsides and everything. Oh my God! It was so powerful it was, when it, was it came like out. Like one of the first music videos yeah. ever. I mean, there were. Look like hundreds of people. I don't know how many people they had for the a couple of dozen, and all different nationalities. Nationalities, exactly. It was impressive. I, I remember being a kid and watching it go, and everybody was singing it. It was like when Pharrell Williams came out with "Happy." Everybody was singing that singing song it for a while. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, when it came out, of course, um, and when the jingle took off, which it did in a in a big hurry, you know. Coca-Cola got besieged with people saying, well, where can we find the music? Can we buy the record? Well, there was no record. But a guy called Billy Davis, who worked with Bill Backer, went in the studio with the Hillside Singers and eventually the New Seekers and cut a version with um, added lyrics and it became a big hit song. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's the story of that. Wow. Do you have... Uh I would think songs are like kids, you know, you, you, you give birth to these wonderful songs and 
when you write them, do you know that? Do you know well, that's something special? I think that's going to be a hit, or you just do it. You, I mean, I think creative people have to create. You know, that's that's who you are. That's what you do. Yeah. Um, but if there are, do you look back and go, wow, that song I'm really proud of, or that that is a song that really that really speaks to my thank that's you. important that speaks to my career it speaks to, to who I am as a writer is there any that, that uh, really some stand songs, out yeah some mm-hmm. songs some songs you'll sit down and you write with someone and you start to perform it when you've more or less got the song finished and sometimes the hairs will stand up on yes your arm. You think, I've got one yep yep we've got one we've got one mm-hmm. and usually that the instinct proves right I mean mm-hmm. I can usually tell a hit Mm-hmm. I I've just written one, I think it's a hit. I wrote this guy, Johnny Lucas, it's called um, God Bless the World. Uh-huh. And it's, it's a song about God bless the world, all the creatures, all the nations, even unbelievers, you know. God bless them all. Wow. And I, I, I grew up, you know, in the last 45 years here, hearing God bless America all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. God bless America. Well, what about the world? So we wrote a song. It's going out in England very shortly. Really? Yeah. That's fantastic. Nobody in the States cut it yet? No, not as yet. We've got this girl, she's married to Ray Kennedy. Her name's Siobhan. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've ever met her. But Ray Kennedy, oh, the Ray. producer. Uh-huh. And uh, she's got a great voice. So the record's going out anyway. So If you want that heated up, by the way, I can heat it up. It's great. Um, you know who I, I work with? Gary Morris. So if you're looking for a big voice for anything, I mean, he's looking to cut some more stuff, too. Um, if, that sounds like... A, a, Gary. You remember Gary? Well, yeah, I remember a couple of big hits, one huge one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a writer, too, if you ever want to co-write. And he splits his time between here and um, Colorado. He has a place out in Colorado. Okay. I've got a daughter there in Colorado. Yeah. He's very, he's very talented. And he's, I tell you, he just did the Studio 10 project and um, he brought the jacket that he wore in La Boheme with Linda Ronstadt and did a live auction. Made like five grand for Studio 10. So they were like, well, we'll have an orchestra. We'll have like, they had a piano and they had a whole band and everything. If you, when you sing, he's like, that's fine, I'll do a cappella. Blew him out of the water. Yeah. Oh yeah, big voice, I remember. Mm-hmm. Lovely voice. Yeah. Well, well, well. Yeah, put us together sometime. I will, I will. We and sit he, around he just, the table. And... He just called me this morning, we were talking. So, um, so what's next? You've got a song going out in England, you're finishing this, it's, is, it, is, it, is it finishing a musical that you have about Golden Mayor? Just Mayer? the right finish, it's going to be finished Monday. What's Golden Mayor? What is it called? It's called um, uh, Next Year in Jerusalem which is a famous old, thousand-year-old um, Jewish saying. Next year in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And um, we called it Golda initially, and the trouble is Lana and I, way back in 74, we used her autobiography as the um, setup for our, our, our play, the script. And we got a letter just after we thought we'd finished the show, cease and desist immediately. And she'd sold the theatrical rights oh, no to kidding. raise money for Israel. And so, so is that what became a movie? We had to forget it for seven years, and in that time we kind of put it aside, you know. Is that what became the movie with Ingrid Bergman? Almost certainly. 
Okay. There's going to be a new movie with, um, it might be Helen Mirren. Oh, that's a good call. I love yeah, her. Yeah, it is a good call. And deal mainly with the Yom Kippur War and so on. Yes, and yes, yes, yes. It might show some of her childhood. I don't yeah. know. Why, why Golda Meir? Why, why were you inspired to write about her? Well, Lionel was Jewish and he was just inspired by her. And we went to see her at the um, Albert Hall in London give a speech. Uh huh. And I said, yeah, yeah, we should write a show about her. And went, reading the autobiography, like, you know, what a life. Yeah. A great life. People don't know. A great it's, life and way, way a pioneer, really, way ahead of her time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And she was old, there in Palestine in the 20s, you know. I mean, she How was, old would she pass? She wasn't that old, right? About 75, 76. Yeah, not, not old at all. Well. I would uh, love her through there, you know, writing all this music for her. I put words in her mouth from the age of six all the way through to 70 something. Do you feel like you, on some level, you channel, you're channeling that spirit? I mean, I know that sounds airy fairy, but it's almost. No, you it's do like, actually. If you, especially with the show, where all the lyrics pertain to the story, mm-hmm. you're not just writing a love song. Mm-hmm. It's um, and you're advancing the story of her life via music. And you have to try and capture the essence of her with music as well as with lyrics, and so uh, you do. You really get into the into the character. And so I said, there is a certain amount of channeling, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's almost like you get quiet and let, and, and, and become receptive. I mean, not to say that songwriting isn't difficult, it's, a, it's hard work, you know. It is when you're writing a show. Mm-hmm. It's like writing the longest jingle in the world. So how many songs in this? Because you're tied to the sure. plot. Sure. How many songs in this piece? We've got about um, 18 or 20 songs. Uh-huh. So what would you like to see happen with that? I'd like to see a production company, maybe in Israel, certainly in Milwaukee, which is where she grew up and went to school. Mm-hmm. So they have an interest, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to see it open in a small way and then uh, somebody say, wow, that's a movie. No, mm-hmm. that's a stage show. That's Broadway. So are you collaborating on this with anybody? You're basically doing it yourself? Yes. I've written a girl called Brooke, who's, who's just uh, terrific. She's written a brand new script, because the old script aged. Mm-hmm. After 45 years, it was kind of old hat. So yeah. we've got a brand new script, and I'm writing with a girl called Catherine, Catherine Marks, mm-hmm. who's a beautiful um, orchestrator, musician. And uh, she's, she, um, is the band leader for Reba mm-hmm. and Rodney Crowell. So she's uh, a great been, musician. Have you been to Israel? Yeah. No, me too. We researched Lyle and I went over and, and spent a lot of time there. Mm. We actually drove into no man's land once by mistake. And Lionel got petrified being Jewish. He was petrified of being no man's land. Mm-hmm. But it was great. Uh, went around the Knesset, you know. And, uh, so a lot of Israel. Mm. I tell it's, you, you have to marvel at that country when you see what they did with the desert. Ah, uh, well, mean, and it's very small, really. I mean, it, it, to see, every, well, yeah. I mean, such concentrated history in such a really small area. And they, they, um, they send a lot of their produce all over Europe. I mean, uh, Israeli produce is big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there you go. That's, yeah. That, 
That show's going to be finished Monday. I'm mixing the last of the demos. Do you have a home studio or do you work at... No, but I have friends with studios. Friends, yeah. Do deals with me, you know, make it a little cheaper. Yes, exactly. It's like owning a boat. You don't want a studio, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't want one. I've never wanted one. Never have one. Yeah. Well, it always has to be updated, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Every other week, something's got to be updated. Yeah. Who needs that? Mm -hmm. Besides, that takes up too much of your time. Mm -hmm. I like, I get a piece of paper and a pencil out, and that's how I write. So you're a legal pad guy? Yeah, the kids come over with the, their laptops and everything. I like to just sit there with a pen and paper. I like the organic. Yeah, well, it's, it's tactile. It's the same reason I like to read books and not a Kindle. Yeah. You know, I like the smell of a book. I like the feel of the paper. Yeah. I love Alice Munro. Mm. Have you read some Alice? I will now. Well, Alice Munro, M-U-N-R-O-E. She writes short stories. And I mean, she's a Pulitzer Prize winner, you know. Mm -hmm. But she's awesome. And I love, what's the other girl in that movie? Wow. Olive Kittredge. Oh, yeah. Oh, read that. I, yeah, love, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love her books. I can't think of her name off the hand. But uh, I love her books, too. I'm reading J.D. Salinger's short stories right now. Ah. Mm. I'm in a couple of book clubs, so it's good. It makes you stretch a little Kid bit. Kid is in a book club. There's one in the street here. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, with Wheezy. So, what do you do for fun? I mean, obviously writing's fun for you, but... Writing is fun to me. Mm -hmm. Still, to this day, I love to write. And if I'm not writing, I like to be on the golf course. Okay. What's your handicap? Oh, well, it was 12. It's now about 18. I write with old friends, Alan Reynolds. I mean, play golf, I'm sorry. Garth Fundish, who you probably oh, no, know. Garth, sure. We, uh, well, we used to manage Tricia, so. Yeah, well, there you go yeah. then, of course, you know, Garth. So Alan Reynolds was my idea to, to work with Garth. Uh, we... We tried to get a record deal. That's when you were working with Bob. Right, with Bob Doyle. And, and we we tried to get a record deal, and everybody passed. And Capitol Records passed. Initially. And Bob had an idea to you know, work with Jerry Kennedy. Well, the gentleman who signed us over at Capitol didn't get along. Lynn Schultz did not get along with Jerry Kennedy. So Bob was like, I don't know what we're going to do. And I said, what about Alan Reynolds? So he's like, that's not a bad idea. Well, Lynn and Alan were good friends, yeah. So we called Alan, and unbeknownst to us, Alan had had enough of the industry, and he was ready to sell his studio. He'd um, had a couple of artists stolen from him, including Crystal. And he's like, that's it, I'm out of here. And then we called him, and the rest is history. So it's funny how things happen, you know? Isn't it lovely? Yeah. And I think he was the perfect choice for Garth. Oh, totally. His temperament. The temperament and very even. Even, exactly. And he's one of the right brain, left brain integrated guys. You know, he's just very level. But he also doesn't have twenty projects going at once. I mean he's very singularly focused. And just the crew of people that were over there, Pat Alger and Rooney was over there. Rooney, yeah. yeah. I saw Rooney last night. And, and uh, Mark Mark Miller. Yeah, Mark. Yeah. Mark's the other goal for this, the four of us. Oh, there you go. Well, give, give them my years. best. Give them I my will. Best. I will. You so that's what I do for fun. Well, where do you like to play? Uh, we play all over. We play on all the public courses. 
we all belong to Nashville Golf out there on Morris Lane, uh -huh. and then we belong to Temple Hills. Okay. And then we decided we may as well be playing um, McCabe or Har Harpeth or or any of those Ted Rhodes, you know. And so that's why we're playing all the public courses. I love it. I love it. Well, very cool. Um, do you have any thoughts just when you were growing up, some of the best advice you were given? My father really wanted me to play violin. And then secondly, he wanted me to be an opera singer because I had a, a, his nephew, my cousin, was um, a principal baritone with a famous opera company called De Oily Cart. Mm -hmm. And they put on Gilbert and Sullivan shows. Mm -hmm. My dad really wanted me to do that, so I had singing lessons when I was a kid. But um, it was just, um, pop was the influence in the end. But I sang in choirs when I was a kid. I was in church choirs. Mm -hmm. I was in a harmonica band. Oh, Long I love before it. I started singing. I love it. And um, so I, I can't say, I'd say my father was my main influence. Mm -hmm. But I was influenced by everything I heard. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of Gershwin and Cole Porter played in those days, you know. And they must have been Carmichael, and, Hoagie. Know. Oh my God! But they must have been so proud of you and, and got to see your success. If they were, they didn't say so, but I felt it. Yeah, I felt their pride because everybody wants their kids to do something. Well, it's against the odds, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. They encouraged me all the way, my folks, anyway, mm -hmm. and. Uh, one advice I would give on to somebody is um, do what I did. I had tunnel vision. Once I set my mind that I was going to be a songwriter, I just pursued it. With all the things that didn't go right, I still pursued it. I wanted it. And I'd say, uh, don't halfway do it. Mm -hmm. Go for it. Sell the house. Go for it. You know. No regrets. No regrets. And meanwhile, what are you doing? You're writing songs. I mean, what a lovely romantic thing to be able to do in life. Sit down and be a musical poet, you know. Mm -hmm. It's great. Mm -hmm. And you feel, you, you sound like you feel very uh, happy and, and content with your life. Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. You've got a great marriage, a great career. I've had everything, really. I lost the daughter, which was terrible sadness. Joanne, yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. That was... Um, when did that happen? That's, that's um, four years ago now. I'm so sorry, I didn't know. I mean, I think Carrie told me, but I didn't realize I'm so sorry. I knew Joanne as well. Yeah, she's the sweetest girl. Mm -hmm. Had problems, you know, mental mm -hmm. problems. Of course. And muscular dystrophy too. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, it, was, it was coming on strong towards the end of her life. She couldn't move much. A beautiful soul, mm -hmm. just yes, a lovely, indeed. lovely soul. Smiled all the time. All Such the time. Such a beautiful smile. Hello. Yes, yeah. I remember her coming to the office and spending time with her. Yeah. Of course, with Joan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, she died in our arms. I mean, oh. we were taken there to a chemo thing. She just had a stroke. Did she have cancer? No. Yeah. Oh. And uh, so we were getting her into. Um, Joan's van, and she just suddenly went on a heartbeat. But she hadn't been well for a long time. Anyway, that's the only real big sadness, apart from losing friends, of course. Yeah. Ralph, mm -hmm. John Prime, 
Peter Sullivan. Oh, All right, I've met Peter Sullivan as well. Well, I'll tell you someone else we have in common, Byworth. Byron, yeah. I love Byron. He's, he's Byworth. a great songwriter. You know, Tony Byworth. Oh, Byworth. Byworth. I thought he said Byron. Yeah. Yeah, Tony Byworth, of course. Oh, my God, what a character. He used to come in town once a year. Yes. I don't know if he still does. He used to stay at my house, and yeah, what a character. And I yeah. stayed with him in England. I'd go to visit. Yeah. Yeah. He had a great career as well. Yes, he did. Reporter, journalist. Yeah. He and Richard Wooten. Uh, Richard, yeah. Do you know Alan Messer? The Alan Messer, yeah. yeah. He was there last night taking photographs of Rooney and the gang. Where were you? At Third Lindsay. Oh, okay. It was Rooney's, um, you know, what they call them now, the, uh, oh, never mind what they call them. But, uh, oh, Irregulars. The Irregulars. I know, it's Sean Camp. Okay. Uh, Sam. Sam Bush? Yeah. Oh, I mean, wow. it's a great lineup of um, great people. Pete Wozner, uh, terrific band. Dave Pomeroy, who you love. Dave Pomeroy. Yeah. yeah, wonderful man. He's very, he's, I mean, lucky to have him advocating for writers. You know, yeah. it's amazing. And musicians, you know. It's it's a it's a beautiful town. It really is, you know. Sometimes I'll talk to people and they're angry and bitter and you know lamenting what was and it's like well, so it's just such a of course, you know. And I I don't really like the state of country music. I don't like what goes down to country music now. But that's the that's it belongs to them, the young people now. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it's always been. I have my turn at the wheel, you know. Exactly. They got theirs, whether you understand it or not. I mean, it was Don Williams and, and Dolly and George Jones and Waylon and people that, that brought me to the town. Maybe I want to stay here, you know? Mm -hmm. And Alan Reynolds songs. That's changing. Fine. Good luck to the kids. But those songs held up. All those songs. I mean, the Garth stuff, all of that holds up, especially the early stuff. It does. Yeah, he has a great song. Mm -hmm. great well, song. Al Alan has Tony great... Rogers' song is I remember when he heard that, he was at the Bluebird, and he, he's like, I have to cut this song, and he, we listened to it, and I'm like, wow. And now it's funny, I listen to this, uh, I have Sirius at home, and I listen to the Spa Channel, and that song is on there all the time, with a sort of this very Kataro vibe to it. You know, I'm like, good for yeah, Tony. Yeah, I love the way Tony sings it. Oh, my God. Tony's a great picker singer. Yeah, he is. Well, we called him when the video was done, and he came over to see it, and he just started weeping. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. I'll bet. What a great guy, very sensitive. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Mm -hmm. I loved you, loved you songwriter. Yeah. There are a lot of great people here. Of course, you're right, Pat Alger. I mean, what great is it? people there. I love the name of his uh, publishing company, Bait and Beer. <laughs> yeah, you gotta love that. Pat was playing last night too. I mean, it was a gang up on stage. It was just really good. Third and Lindsay, huh? I'm sorry, I missed it. I've heard that the Bluebird is going away. Did you hear that? Is she going what? Get going away. No. Like they're taking the building over, knocking it down, which would be a pity. I hope that's not true. Well, they can probably re-erect the Bluebird somewhere else. Yeah. Because they did it for the TV show. Exactly. So somebody can do, they can do it. Oh, I know. It's just so Green Hills is going to go. I know. There's no way to start to go. Exactly, exactly. It's so. It's just that's the thing about 
that I lament somewhat, you know, having, as you have, having traveled, and I like old things. I, I live in an old house. I, I resurrected old buildings on Music Row. I grew up in an old house. So there's this charm and uniqueness about oldness. But we, we are a really young country. And oh, yeah. we don't understand or appreciate our history. And we're all too willing to sacrifice it and knock it down. And we like the new and shiny. And it's just, it's very... They don't like, protect the antiquity no, like Europe Like does, Europe yeah. does. And you have hundreds and hundreds of years more history than we do. But that's why people want to visit Europe, is that they, they can embrace themselves. And, and, and in this, see where they came from. Exactly. Well, most of them. Right yeah. And, and you've survived wars, and you still have been able to rebuild. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't understand that about America. And it, I think part of it is people haven't traveled, and they don't realize how special. Right. So that's part of it. I don't know. That would be my one. I would say 80% of Americans do not really travel. As much as I, 80%. Obviously. I think you're right. Mainly because it's expensive, you know. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, for what it would cost to go to Disneyland or Disney World, you're you can right. go to England. You can go to Paris. You can go to Paris. I mean, it's not that expensive. And there's all kinds of deals. I mean, you can, I don't know. I, I just don't get that. It's, it's about getting out of your comfort zone. That's they don't it. want to get out I of their comfort zone. I think you can't speak a language. Of course, English is different to American. <laughs> a little different. That's funny. But uh, the English love Americans. The Americans love the English. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a long time affair, you know. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and the Irish like us, too. The Irish love Americans. Yeah. Not crazy about the English. No, well. We went and bullied them for 500 years. But then, if you look at Ireland, you look at England, Scotland, I mean, it. They were almost certainly one nation at one time. Absolutely. One piece of land, anyway. So Lewis is a Welsh name. So my my dad. Of course it is. Yeah, my dad's name was John Lewis, just like this, the stores that the you store, have. The store, yeah. Yeah. So there was a there's actually a Lewis Tartan and there's a Lewis Castle that of course was bombed yeah. <laughs> or destroyed. It's but there is a picture of it. So yeah, I'm I'm all. UK, English, Irish, Welsh, that's my background. A little bit of French Huguenot. A little Celtic. Yeah. A little Celtic action, yeah. I am too. My my father's grandfather was Irish. Uh -huh. And my mother's great-grandmother was Scottish. I see. So I got uh -huh. a lot of Celts in me. So what's the next place you want to visit? Do you have a bucket list of places that you'd like to go to? A kid and I actually want to go to Alaska. Oh, definitely and we do. we want to get a car and we want to drive as much the as... Alaskan Highway. As Impossible to drive at all, but we can fly to different parts like Anchorage or wherever mm -hmm. and take a car out there for a few days and go somewhere else and take a car out. You could do a cruise and then couple, yeah. couple it with driving because it's really impressive to see the calving glaciers. So I've done, I've done I want to both. see them and I'd love to be that close to the northern lights. You know? Oh my god, another place to see the northern lights that is fabulous is to go to Iceland. Iceland, yeah. And that's another great place to be. And it's it is very cheap Iceland. to go there. I went to Iceland. Matter of fact, I went to Iceland a few years ago in the winter time. I want to say January, February, and it was warmer there than here, because the Gulf Stream goes through there. And that's what, well, yeah, and as it circles England and Ireland. Yeah. And the 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 mineral baths, like the Blue Lagoon, is fabulous. 
So I would recommend going there. It's I'd love to go to Iceland. Yeah. It's kind of halfway from here to England anyway. Absolutely. It's up, up a little, you know. Well, you, you can, there's a lot of cheap flights like through Reykjavik and then you go on to wherever you want to go, Paris or London or whatever. Yeah. And the food is really good. You know, they have great, really clean kind of food. Yeah, I could put that on the bucket list for sure. Yeah. There's a lot of world to see. I've never been to India. Been there too. Yeah. Apparently, a friend of mine A lot of, of English influence, of course. It's a bit of a bring down at times, you know. It's, they're depressingly poor sometimes out there in the States. Never seen so much poverty yeah. as India. But there's, it's a sensory bombardment, like everything about it. It's, it is um, incredibly colorful. There's a real sincerity of the people. So they're, they're very welcoming. They're very religious. Whatever their religion is, they're very adamant about it. Buddhism, We're, I guess. No, Hinduism. Hinduism, yeah. Hinduism, there's a lot of sex they have. But, and the food is wonderful, of course. Yeah. Um, but I, I went, and I'd like to go back and have it be a bit of a more posh trip because it was more kind of um, outreach, if you will. Um, I mean, we were visiting lepers and things like that, so that was a bit of a downer. But they're very proud people. Not in a haughty way, but just in a dignified way. They still got a form of apartheid there. Oh, absolutely. Big time. Caste system is still alive and well. But it is so so many places. It's just not called that. You yeah. know, we certainly have somewhat of that in the in the states for sure. Yeah. So I want to see your play. Can't wait to see it when it is mounted, and I will uh, put you in touch with Patrick. Cassidy and see if it's anything you're, you could mount it here and get the support. Yeah. How many characters in, in The Gold of My Ear would you say? Play? We could probably get away with about 12 characters. Okay. Quite a small entourage, really. About 12. Uh, so there won't be any huge dancing ensembles on stage, but there will. I mean, obviously, there's no choreographer yet. There are songs that will need choreography because they're action songs, marketplaces mm. and so on. Uh, it's a long way to go yet. You should uh, see the next show they're doing, Camelot is the next show. Camelot, mm -hmm. how about that? Mm -hmm. It opens in Big May. Camelot. Can't help but think of JFK when you think of Camelot. Yeah, well, it was known as the American Camelot, yeah. Thanks to Jackie. They were romantic times, weren't they? The Kennedy years, they mm -hmm. really were. Mm -hmm. He was a handsome, we didn't know about Marilyn, Marilyn at that time. Well, Marilyn she was just one of many. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the, the press kept that under wraps. They didn't, they didn't betray There's him. There's a musical to write. <laughs> John and Marilyn. Wow, that would be salacious. Because probably somebody knows more of the story than we know. Do you think they had her killed? Certainly Jackie probably did. Well, there's more to the assassination too, don't you think? Yeah, it's a little suspicious. Mm -hmm. And I believe the guy, the sniper, did do it, but I'm not sure he wasn't um, Had accomplices. coerced into it, yeah. Oh yeah, he's a patsy, remember he said, I'm just a patsy. Yeah. 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 And the convenient way that uh, Ruby killed him, you know. Mm -hmm. What was she doing in that crowd so close to him with a gun? 
Well, they didn't have the kind of security that we have now. That no, would never. No, that would never have happened. But, uh, but none of these assassinations would have happened, I don't think. I mean, certainly Bobby wouldn't have gotten killed that way. No. Sir Han, Sir Han. I mean, they had metal detectors now. That would never have happened. So we live and learn. We have these tragedies, and then we shore things up. But we don't. In some ways, we don't live and learn. You can still get weapons of mass destruction here. Well, that's another thing I don't. I can't just kill all those innocent people all the time. Yeah, I don't get that either. I don't get the fascination with guns and the Second Amendment and all that. But I, I see people going out and um, um, hunting. Mm-hmm. I see that. But why would you go out hunting with something that can spray a hundred bullets in exactly. a few minutes? Exactly. To kill a deer? No. No. That's, and what's, that's the, the, what's the sport in that? Yeah. The sport is people killing with those guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I come from England. Well, the cops only get armed very, very rarely when there's heavy trouble. Right. Cops don't have guns. They can still hit you with a stick. But there's, there, there's total gun, gun control in England. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with, you know, there was no culture of guns. And you don't have the violence that we have. No. People Me over too. there will stab you. I mean, there's violence in that way. But I'd rather face a knife than a gun. Because mm-hmm. I can run, you know. Mm-hmm. And I you, can you run can't, from a gun. I was going to say, you can't un- outrun a, a, oh, bull, a bullet. It's been sprayed like the guy on the train there in New York. How many people were killed? I don't even know. There weren't. 21 were shot. 21 were shot. No one was killed? And there's five in intensive care. Okay. He just went... I'm sorry, you know, I didn't feel well. I've been angry. So, it's not a perfect world, America. But it's the best place I've ever been. I love America. I much prefer Americans to English. Why is that? Well, the English are rather dour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's family, of course not. But you ask an Englishman that, as how he is, you know, you go, well, it could be worse. Not bad. Not bad. That's the attitude over there. Mm. Why Americans you, go, great. Why do you think that is? Losing, uh, well, winning two wars and losing the empire. Ah. So there's a kind of self-put-down about the English. They're very sarcastic, the English. Indeed. They have sarcasm. In a neat way, actually. I like sarcasm. I don't mind it. You put each other, they like how to would you ba- know? You they know? like to banter. Yeah. You know, there's like that dry wit. Yeah. Yeah. Byron. Well, hence, Monty Python. Oh, God. All put-down stuff, you know. Byron used to say, the English are awkward, is what he would say. Yes, well they are. They still have pride, but they lost the empire. And we won two wars against the Germans, but it cost us in manhood and and, um, just the general wealth of the country was like... Decimated. Yeah. Well, there we go. I'm going to have a lunchtime beer, because I can. There you go. Roger Cook. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, darling. It's been lovely lovely having a chat. Thank you for being on our show, Applaudable Perspectives.